Welcome to the Life Church Podcast. We're so glad you joined us today. It's our prayer that this message is a blessing and encouragement to your life. For a list of messages, to stream live services, and for updates about events and more info, visit lifechurchroa.org. Thanks for checking out the podcast. Here's this week's message. Good morning. So good to be with you this morning. Isn't it exciting to be in the house of the Lord? Anybody else love Sundays? I love Sundays. I love church. My my kids, um, they're they're pretty young, but they they identify the days of the week by is it school day, is it stay home day, or is it church day? And so they wake up in the morning. Is it church day today? Or if it if they want to know if it's Wednesday, they'll say is it school day and then church 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 day after school. So I love church day. I hope you do too. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, Pastor, as Alicia said, Pastor Joshua and his entire family are ministering at another church about an hour away here in our network. And um, their kiddos are, lead, they're not really kiddos anymore, they're teenagers, but are leading worship and bringing the word. And so we just want to remember them in prayer as they are using their gifts for the Lord, but it's nerve wracking to get in front of people anyways, but especially people you don't know very well in a church. They, I, I was talking to Lexi and Zoe about it last Sunday. They've never even been inside that church building. That's scary. So would you all be in prayer for them today? But we're excited to hear what God's going to do through them and so thankful for their obedience. But um, as Alicia said, that made way for me to get to speak to you today. So I'm sorry you get third strand, but... Uh, we're going to jump in to the word here in just a minute, but I'm excited that it's missions month. I love missions. And if you know anything about me, you know that I was previously the children's pastor here and my mom is a children's minister. And so it's just been ground into me. I love kids and I love missions and I love BGMC, which is how our kids learn about missionaries and give to missions. And so I thought it would be cool today to bring a little tiny snippet of a BGMC lesson to you so that you could see just a little glimpse of what we do and what we learn about in BGMC. And so every month we learn about a different country or a different ministry, and they send us what they call true mission stories. And these are stories sent in by missionaries of things that have happened while they're on the field ministering in all different parts of the world. And so I wanted to play one for you today um, from a missionary couple in the country of Spain. So check out this video. Was somebody praying? It was Sunday evening, June 4th. Missionaries Kevin and Karen Prevost had gone to a neighboring town in Spain to assist a fellow missionary with an evangelistic meeting. The meeting had gone well and people were touched by the Spirit of God. After the meeting had ended, people were standing around talking to each other and enjoying each other's company. Several of the men had started to load up and put away the chairs. One man began putting chairs into the prevost van that was parked across the street. He didn't know that the prevost's three-year-old son, Daniel, had followed him. As little Daniel stepped into the street, he didn't look for cars. Just then, a car was coming down the street. It was heading right for Daniel. The driver of the car saw Daniel and braked as hard as he could, but it was too late. The sound of screeching brakes filled the air. Everyone who was standing around talking wondered what was going on. The driver had tried to stop, but could not. 
He tried to swerve to avoid hitting Daniel, but it was too late. The car hit Daniel and threw him into the air. He landed several yards away onto the pavement. The prevost saw the car coming, but everything happened too fast. There was no time to grab Daniel from the path of the car. In horror, Karen realized Daniel had been hit by the car. She yelled for Kevin and they ran to where Daniel was lying. Was Daniel even alive? Kevin and Karen immediately began praying for Daniel and calling out to God for his hand to be on Daniel. When they got to Daniel, they were expecting to pick up a bruised and bleeding child. But a miracle happened. They found little Daniel lying on the ground with barely a scratch on him. It was as though the hand of God had caught him and protected him. The driver of the car went to the hospital with them just to make sure that Daniel was all right. Kevin and Karen were able to testify to him and to all the doctors of the miraculous protection of our loving Father. After witnessing God's miraculous protection, Kevin and Karen Prevost were wondering, was somebody specifically praying for us at this time? A few years later, as Kevin was visiting a church in Michigan, a woman named Katrina McCormick introduced herself to him and related to him the other side of the story. Katrina and her husband Jeff had adopted the Prevost as their missionaries and had prayed faithfully for them for 11 years. One Sunday morning in June, as their church service was coming to a close, they were lingering at the altar. God gave each of them a heavy burden to pray for the Prevost family. Individually, they responded, praying for each family member by name, not knowing that the other was also praying the same thing. A month later, they received the Prevost's newsletter and read the account of Daniel's accident with amazement. They quickly checked their calendar and discovered it was the very day and time they had been praying at the altar. Boys and girls, do your prayers make a difference? Yes, they do. Only eternity will reveal all of the lives your prayers have touched. It's important to pray for our missionaries every day. We could just go home right there, right? <laughs> Incredible, right? The way that God uses those moments of burden and how important it is for us to pray for our missionaries, how important it is um, for us to, to be obedient to the leading of the Holy Spirit when he lays someone on your heart, when he brings to mind someone or, or a missionary or a particular place, how important it is to be obedient to that, right? Did you catch that the, the family had prayed for the missionary, for the Prevost family for 11 years? They had faithfully prayed for them. And then one day there came a moment where the Holy Spirit needed them, right? And what a miracle that was and how incredible it is. It's so encouraging to me that, you know, those moments where we think, oh, whatever, I'll, I'll pray for them later. How important those moments could be, right? All right, let me read a, a portion of scripture into your ears today. Um, that's going to come back. It's going to be important. You'll need to remember that mission story. I see some of you wiping tears from your eyes. <laughs> it's moving, isn't it? Can you imagine a three-year-old boy 
being hit by a car and moved like that, and then to see him as if, as if the hand of God had, had caught him and held him. How miraculous that must have been in that moment. And then to find out years later, it was through the power of prayer and the obedience of God's people. Um, today, as we um, continue in our series called, not really called, but dubbed Cheat Codes, the Missions Collective, but all of these sermons have ended up having a cheat code. So we're going to continue that thread on today. We're on the pillar of the Missions Collective for encouragement. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I want to read this portion of scripture into your ears, and then we're going to get into the message part. It's Philippians chapter 4. If you want to join me there for just a few minutes, we'll break it apart as we go through it. Philippians chapter 4. I hear pages turning. I'm sorry, I should have gave you a heads up. It's also on the big screen behind me if you need to use that. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 4, says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Jesus, we ask today that um, our ears and our minds would be open to you, God. Would you soften our hearts to hear from you, Jesus? Would you use me as your servant today to convey your words? Not what I want to say, not necessarily what we might want to hear, but God, would you speak to us today? We are ready and we are listening and our hearts are open to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to tell you a story. Um, It's a made-up story, but play along with me. A group of frogs was traveling through the woods when two of them fell into a deep pit. All the other frogs gathered around the top of the hole and looked down at how deep it was and thought, they will never get out of there. And so they told them, don't bother jumping. It's a waste of your effort. And the two frogs that were in the bottom of the pit tried their hardest to jump. They, they put all their energy into jumping out of that pit, but they couldn't get up. And so the other frogs around them said, There's, it's no good. There's no use in trying. Just give up. And so one of the frogs listened to them, and he soon laid down and died. But the other frog didn't give up. He kept jumping and kept jumping and kept jumping, and he used all his strength to jump. And the other frogs at the top kept looking down and saying, I don't know why you're still jumping. This is useless. You'll never get out of there. And he kept on and he kept on and he kept on. And eventually he did jump out of that pit. And when he got to the top, the other frog said, didn't you hear us? There's no way you could get out of there. We told you not to bother. And he said, oh, really? I'm hard of hearing. I thought you were cheering and you were waving me on to keep trying harder and to jump higher. You see, what we listen to, the words that we speak over other people and the ones that we choose to hear have a lot of weight and a lot of value. And it depends greatly 
who we choose to listen to and what we choose to hear. On the other hand, the words that we speak to and about other people have great weight. It's important that we think twice about what comes out of our mouth because the words of our mouth could literally be the difference between life and death. That's what the word says, right? That the tongue has the power of death and life. And so today we're going to talk about the cheat code for being an encourager and how we can make sure that the words of our mouth are encouraging others and not putting them down. You see, in the world of medicine, uh, we use little cheat codes all the time to remember things. My husband and I both work in EMS, or we used to work in EMS. We're still certified, but we don't do that anymore. But if you think all the way back to your first EMT class, they start teaching you these little acronyms to remember, like SAMPLE and OPQRST. Even if you've taken a CPR class, you've probably been told ABC, airway, breathing, circulation. That's kind of like day one, right? There's another one before we give medications, and we go through the five rights of medications before we give it to someone. We have to make sure that it's the right patient. You don't want to be giving a med to the wrong person. You have to make sure that it's the right medication, because some of them sound similar. You have to make sure that it's the right dosage, the correct measurement. You have to make sure it's the right time for them to take that medication, and that it's being given in the appropriate route, whether it's IV or by mouth or what have you. And so we use the five rights to remember those things and to make sure we go through this checklist, if you will, before we give a medication. And so today I want to introduce to you something I came up with called the six rights of being an encourager. And let me rephrase that. I probably didn't come up with this. The Lord opened my eyes to see it because I struggled for a long time with this message because Pastor Josh was like, well, I'm going to continue the cheat codes theme on the second week. So if you want to keep that going, you can. I tried really hard to come up with something very creative and I'm not a video game player and he stole my only idea on the first week when he gave you the Konami code. Up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, B, A, start. I know that one, but that's the only one I know. (laughs) So I worked really hard and I came up with the six rights of being an encourager. So we're going to go through those now. The first is the right praise. If we're going to be an encourager of people, then we have to make sure that the reason why we're doing it is for God, that our praise and our worship is focused on him and not other people. Sometimes it can be easier and tempting to encourage someone who is likable, right? It's easy to encourage someone that you want to succeed. And sometimes it's tempting to be encouraging when you want to be likable. We all want to be seen as a positive person, right? We don't want to be seen as a discouraging or negative person. So sometimes you need to smile and say encouraging things to people so that they like you or that their parents like you, right? So that other people around you see you being an encourager. But that's not why we need to be speaking words of life, is it? The reason why we need to encourage one another is that it should first be an act of worship towards God. And when our praise and our attention is focused on Christ, then we will be able to fulfill all that he's asked of us, including loving others well, the ones that we don't like, the ones that aren't like us, and even when no one else sees us. 
if, like that verse says in verse four, says, if we are rejoicing in the Lord always, if we're rejoicing in the Lord always, then there isn't room to be rejoicing in other people, right? And in the, the um, approval of other people. If we're rejoicing in the Lord always, it pushes out the need to be accepted by other people because our joy comes from him. Our worship, our attention, our affection ought to be on Jesus first. And then he is our reward, right? When we seek him first, as Matthew 6, says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then all these things will be given unto you. We're reminded that in Romans chapter 11, that from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. We have to have right praise. Secondly, we have to have a right heart. And that sounds like it might be the same thing as right praise. But it's a little bit different. It has to do with having our hearts fully surrendered to the Lord, which should be happening as a daily surrender. It can't just happen one time and then we're done and we can just go do whatever we want to do. We constantly have to continue to lay down our life, crucify our flesh, and take up the cross of Jesus. Jeremiah 17, 9 reminds us that the heart is deceitful above all things. We cannot follow our own heart. Our heart has to be made new by the Lord. It says it's deceitful above all things beyond cure. There is no hope that our fleshly heart is going to lead us to the things of God. Romans 12, 1 reminds us, therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, that it would be to lay down your life as a living sacrifice, right? Holy and pleasing to God, that this is your acceptable act of worship, that we would be living sacrifices, our whole lives devoted to Jesus. But you know what the problem is with a living sacrifice? Let me tell you the problem with a living sacrifice. They can crawl off the altar. That's the problem with a living sacrifice. And so I don't know about you, but me, I crawl off the altar. Sometimes I say, Lord, I'm all yours. I'm surrendered to you. Lead me and guide me and tell me what you want me to do. And then next thing I know, my kid is driving me crazy. And I'm not pointing them to Jesus. I'm tearing them down with my words. Because I'm frustrated. Because I'm not fully surrendered. Because if we're a living sacrifice, we have to make the choice to get on the altar. And sometimes it feels better to crawl back off and say, not today. Thank you. (laughs) Maybe not today. Maybe not in this moment. Maybe not with this person. Maybe not while I'm at work. But if we're going to be fully devoted and our heart is going to be fully surrendered to Jesus, then we make the decision to crawl up on the altar and say, it's all for you, Jesus. It's all yours. This is my act of worship, fully surrendered to you. We cannot possibly speak words of encouragement if our hearts are not full of the goodness of God. Thirdly, we have to have a right mind. This is a struggle, isn't it? I don't know about you, but it's a struggle for me sometimes. Just like our hearts have to be purified, so do our minds. What we dwell on is what will come out, right? What you want to, to find, you will find. 
If you want to find fault in people, you will find it. If you want to prove that you're better than everybody else, you will find problems with other people. And I know we don't think that, but sometimes it creeps in our mind, right? If they would just do that the way I told them to. I think that about my kids' bedrooms all the time. If they just put their shoes back on the rack like I told them to, they'd be able to find them. If they do it my way, right? We have to have our minds cleansed and focused on God's word and what he says. And let's go back to verse 8 of that Philippians 4 passage that we read. And it tells us what we should be thinking about. It tells us what should be in our minds. And it's not always easy to keep it limited to that lengthy list. It says, whatever is true. This does not mean true following a logical process to determine the right answer. This is about our thoughts conforming to reality and the truth. Who is the truth? Jesus is the truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life, right? Limiting ourselves to, and I say limiting, but only looking for him as being our truth. That's not really limiting, but it is choosing not to trust what everybody else would say about us. It's choosing not to believe what the world might want us to believe. It's choosing not to think that I myself know the best thing for my life. Because as we already looked at, the heart is deceitful. It can't be my truth. It has to be his truth. Whatever is noble, something that is noble is worthy of being respected. Something that is noble is worthy of being worshipped. Noble things are not cheap and they are not vulgar. Whatever is right, this means being in accordance with God's standards Trusting what he says is right. Looking for his righteousness. Something that we cannot achieve on our own. But Christ accomplished this on our behalf. These are the kinds of things that we should dwell on with our thoughts. It continues on. Whatever is pure. Purity of thought means to have proper motives. Not to dwell on sinful things, but to dwell on the things of God. The more I despise my sin the more I reflect the purity of God. It's really easy to despise other people's sin, isn't it? Oh, are you wearing your steel toe today? I'm sorry, that hurts, doesn't it? But it is, it's easy to despise sin that other people are doing. But the more I despise my own sin, the more I reflect the purity and the nature of God. Whatever is lovely, this term refers to something that is lovable by nature. And as we think on the concept of love, we are suddenly reminded that God himself is love. Whatever is admirable, something that is an object of wonder, pleasure, or approval. This is something that is kind, not something that could be found offensive. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, these words that Paul kind of lumps together to close out his list 
give us the final piece of the puzzle that we are to be dwelling in our thoughts on things that are excellent and praiseworthy, something of incredible value that is worthy of praise, that is worthy of our highest honor. What could this be descriptive of but God himself? It's critical that our minds are set on the things of God, that our primary focus is on him and his nature. And so then our minds can be full of what what he thinks, how he would respond to a situation. What words would come out of his mouth? Fourth, we have to have the right peace. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is hard, if not impossible, to encourage ourselves and others around us when we are not at peace. And if your peace, if my peace, disappears when things don't go my way, it's not God's peace. If my peace disappears when my job is on the line, it's not God's peace. If my peace disappears when my family is in an argument, then it's not God's peace. See, his peace goes beyond what we can understand. Our joy, our happiness, sometimes can depend on our circumstances, but his does not. Aren't you glad? That's good news. That's good news. He gives us peace that makes no sense. He gives us peace that we can walk through things that seem impossible. We're going to look at a Bible account here in a few minutes that looks totally illogical. But God brings his peace to the situation. And it allows us to trust and to do things that he's asked us to do that don't make sense to other people. Because we recognize that God's kingdom is the opposite of the world's kingdom. And what other people around us would say are good or pure or true or right or lovely or things that we should worship or things that are praiseworthy, that are worthy of our attention... If they don't match up to God's values, then we've got to really think about what we're allowing in our mind. We've got to really consider what we allow to dwell on in our thoughts. Because if we're dwelling on the things that the world would tell us are pure and right and lovely, we're going to be awfully confused, aren't we? It's going to be awful hard to do things that God's asked us to do and to be faithful to him and trust the process. To trust in his timing and his providence. Finally, the last uh, two are right speech and right works. And I'm going to put these together. They're separate, but they function together, don't they? The words of our mouth and the works of our hands. They need to be honoring to God, right? If we want other people to believe in Jesus, he said that they will know us, that we are Christians, by our love, by what we show them, by how we speak to them, by how we act when we're out in the world, by how we have joy when we go through hard times, how we have peace and trust in the Lord, that he will always make a way, that he will provide 
It can be tempting to believe the worldly thought pattern that you cannot give what you do not have. Or to take care of your own needs before you give to others. To make sure that your house is in order first. Have you heard those things? Have you thought those things? I'll give when I have extra. But I'm going to challenge you that God has a track record for using that which was not enough and making it into plenty. If you recall when Moses was called by God to approach Pharaoh and to lead God's people into the promised land, he said, I'm not equipped for this task. I can't do this. I can't talk right. What am I going to say to Pharaoh that he's going to believe me? And do you remember what God said to him? He said, what is that in your hand? Just a shepherd's staff. It's just a stick. And God said, okay, we can use that, right? In 1 Kings 17, the widow, and we're going to break this apart a little bit more, but the widow that was asked to house and feed the great prophet Elijah, she was preparing to go home and make one final meal before starving to death with her son. She did not have enough. She did not have something to share. She was not there to, looking to be hospitable. She was not having a party at her house. This was a dire situation. But the man of God came and asked for some water and some bread first before feeding her family. And she said, I only have a little flour and a little oil. And God said, no problem. Watch this. Jesus was teaching to a great crowd, over 5,000 people, right? And the disciples said, let's send the people away. They're hungry. We don't have any food to feed them. They're hungry. We got to stop this. We need to send them on to get a meal. And Jesus said, what do you have? Five loaves and two fish? He said, perfect. I can make that work. Paul was what we would call today a bivocational pastor. He was preaching and teaching in the synagogues and he was going on missionary journeys, but his trade was being a tent maker. When he left Athens, feeling defeated that he had not planted a church there, he had not convinced many people to follow Jesus when he was in Athens. He left there And God provided him with some of his new greatest friends and encouragers, Aquila and Priscilla. Their connection point, besides being followers of Jesus, that they were both tent makers. This is evidence that God can use your job, your trade, to be a connecting point. That he can use even that to be a place where he can help us to meet the people And make the connections that he needs us to make. Never despise what God has placed in your hands or the place that he has brought you to. It can feel insignificant. It can feel inadequate. It could feel desperate and desolate. And yet God has a track record of using what we think is useless. God has a track record of using what we think is futile and turning it around to be exactly what he needs, to do a miracle. Never let the enemy convince you 
that what you do and who you know and how much is in your bank account can be a limiting factor for God. He rules above those things. We'll never have enough money. We'll never have enough followers. And we'll never have enough square footage in our house to feel like we have everything, right? We'll probably never be um, so fancy by the world standards. We may never have enough by the world standards. But with God, these things can be multiplied and used in ways that we just simply cannot understand. We're going to go back to 1 Kings chapter 17. If you want to turn there, I would encourage you to. There's so much there. There's so much. We can't unpack it all. But I encourage you to go back and read what the miracle that Elijah did and the full account of the widow. But we're going to look into it just a little bit further. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase and tell the account to you. Basically, Elisha prayed that there would be no rain. And there was no rain. It says no dew even, nothing. And God needed to use this as a moment to prove his power. And during this drought, Elijah probably thought, okay, but what about me, God? Hello, (laughs) I'm gonna say this thing, but I'm gonna die too. (laughs) And God gave him specific instructions. You're gonna go down to this brook and I'm gonna send ravens to bring food to you morning and night and you'll have water to drink. But eventually that brook dried up. And I wanna encourage you that sometimes you can follow the direction of God and it looks good for a little while. And then all of a sudden the brook dries up. I say, okay, God, you led me out here. And now what? And then sure enough, the word of the Lord comes to him again and says, I want you to go and find this widow. And I have told her to feed you. I'm going to make this happen. And so he goes to the widow at Zarephath and he finds this woman and he says, excuse me, would you please go get me a jar of water? And as she turns to go, he says, oh, by the way, will you make me a piece of bread, please? And she says, I don't have bread to share with you. All I have is a little scoop of flour and a little olive oil in a jug. And I'm out here gathering sticks to go prepare a meal for my son and I that we may eat it and die. She said, I don't have enough to give. I don't have enough to share. And Elijah pressed on, go ahead, make, myself, my, make me a loaf of bread and bring it to me before you feed your family. I don't know about you, but I don't know that I would have done that. I'd have been like, dude, you are crazy. <laughs> go find somebody else that can make you some bread. But it says that she did it. And sure as the word of the Lord, the, the flour did not run out. And the oil did not run out. And it says that she fed Elijah and they they ate for many days like that. All she had was enough for one loaf of bread. And there was enough the next day and enough the next day and enough the next day. And they probably never had a feast, right? They probably never had a big party. They probably never had lots of extra, but they had enough. 
God provided for their need. And I can't help but think how this might correlate to when God asks something of us that is impossible. And in our flesh, we might say, God, I can't do that. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the skills to do that. I'm not brave enough to speak in front of people. I don't work good with kids. I don't have enough money to give. I can think of a million other excuses that I've made when God's asked me to do something. It seems impossible. Seems like it'll never happen. But I wanna encourage you today. Whatever it is that's in your hands, whatever it is, wherever it is, and whoever alongside you find yourself that God has placed you, your oil is not cheap. See, this widow's oil was probably not expensive, but it was everything that she had. Her oil was not extra. She didn't have enough. She was not wealthy. She did not have it all together. In fact, later in the text, uh, there's a miracle with her son, but first she asks Elijah, did you only come here to remind me of my sin? She did not have it all together. Was she faithful and obedient to God? Yes. But it's also evident that she was not perfect and she knew it. But her oil that she had remaining in her jug, that was earmarked. That was spoken for. It was all that was left. It was everything she had. And Elijah, the man representing God, asked for it first. And I can't help but to see the correlation of the widow's obedience with our obedience to God when he asked for something to be given and surrendered fully to him. When God asks, are we holding what he's given us with palms wide open? Or are we holding everything we have with clenched fists? This is something I had to learn the hard way. God cannot use things that are held in clenched fists. We've got to hold it with our hands open and say, God, you placed it here. If you need it, it's yours. You trusted me with this and I'll steward it and I'll hold it well. But if you need it back, you can take it and I'll trust you. It's hard to do, isn't it? It's not easy when we feel like we don't have enough or we feel like we're inadequate. God pushes us out of our comfort zone and he asks for something to be surrendered. But remember what we talked about, we're gonna be living sacrifices. If our whole lives are crawled up on the altar and we say, it's all for you, Jesus, then how could we hold something so tightly in our fist and say, but not that, but not that. There's a, a story I was reading about a long time ago and I don't really know the validity of it, but it was about the Knights of Templar and some of them were being baptized and they would be baptized with their sword. And what they would do when, when they would be put under the water, they would hold their sword up out of the water. And it was as if it was a symbol to say, I give you my life, God, I give you my heart, but what I do on the battlefield, I can't surrender to you. And it challenged me because I thought, what do we hold up out of the baptismal waters? Symbolically, right? What do we hold up and say, I give you everything except this. 
except not the last dollar in my checking account, except not this one person that I really don't wanna deal with, except not my cell phone. It could be any number of things that sometimes we hold out of the water and say, ooh, everything except. And unfortunately, I've come to find that that's exactly what God asked for. That's exactly what he says. I need that too, right? Because he's asked for all of us. None of us can ever see or understand how God will choose to make use of our resources or who he will transform us to become when we sacrifice our lives to us. Your favorite teacher in school could not see the full outcome of who you would become and all you would accomplish. They saw the potential, but they probably didn't see the outcome. They didn't see the finished product. This year at Life Academy, we used to have our pre-K graduation in the mornings and the school was open and operation, but we would gather in here to do our graduation. This year, we moved it to the evening And although it was more convenient for some parents who had to work during the day, that's not why we did it. We did it so that our infant teachers would see graduation. We did it so that our toddler teachers would see graduation. So that our three-year-old teachers would see the end result of every diaper they've changed, every nose they've wiped, every trip out to the playground and back in, every Bible lesson they taught, every little one that they taught how to hold the crayon correctly, each one that they served baby food to, we needed them to see this is the reason so that we can send them off to kindergarten with the right foundation, with knowing that Jesus is the Lord of their life, with knowing that they have a home here and a family here and they can always come back. We needed our teachers to see that we're making deposits every day we needed to see a glimpse of that end result. Of course, that's not the end of their life. They're going to go to kindergarten and up through high school and college and do amazing things with their life. And sometimes we get to hear about those, but more often we don't. But we needed them to see, this is why we do this. This is the reason. There was a man in my church growing up by the name of Marlon Rogers. And some of you are like, how do you know him? because he also came to this church for a while. And he was a Sunday school teacher and his wife, Carol, led worship at our church. And he made me several things. But one of them was this feather necklace. It used to be a necklace, it's broken. That he hand carved out of a piece of a deer antler. And he strung the beads and put the leather on And he gave it to me when I was probably seven or eight years old. And it's become a treasure to me. My girls hold it and they love it and they want to look at it. And I say, don't lose that. That's special. You cannot take it outside. No, you can't take it to school. It's just really cool. It's handcrafted. He made it. And his generosity, though, in him using those skills... Like I said, he made me a couple different things. And why would he give them to me? We're not related. We don't have any really special connection. I don't remember a whole lot about him, 
but I remember that he smiled a lot. And I remember that he took the time to encourage me. And he took the time to teach this little kid how to operate the sound system at our church. And I've kept this necklace as a special keepsake to me of a person who believed in me, even though he couldn't see who I would become. He passed away when I was a teenager and one day in heaven, I'll tell him how I kept this feather necklace and how his words of encouragement and his deposits of time mattered to me. My granny Furrow was one of the best church pianists I've ever heard. She could play any hymn you wanted in any key you asked for and sound like she had rehearsed it all morning long for you. And yet every time I went to her house, she would encourage me, go to the piano, play me a tune, Sarah Beth, play me a tune. Knowing full well that I was just gonna be banging on keys and it was gonna be a terrible rendition of whatever song I picked out. But nevertheless, every time I was there, why don't you play me a tune? You see, it's easy to encourage those who we love. It's easy to encourage our grandchildren and even the kids at church, the kids in our class, in our small group, in our family. It's easy to encourage our friends sometimes, or our coworkers, if we're working on a project, you got this, keep going, keep working hard. But how do we encourage those who are hard to love? How do we encourage those who make poor decisions that we don't agree with? How do we continue to encourage people when we think they're wasting their time? How do we encourage people who don't speak our language? How do we encourage people who we might not ever even meet? How do we encourage when we don't have enough ourselves. How will we encourage when it seems impossible? Remember those frogs around the top of the hole? Don't bother. It's a waste of time. You'll never get out of there. How do we choose to speak words of encouragement when we don't see how it's going to work out? How do we choose to speak encouragements when it would be easier to say, just give up? This is a lot of hard work. And you're probably still not going to make it. James chapter 5 gives us some important insight on the ending of this story with Elijah that we talked about. The drought that came because Elijah spoke the word of the Lord that there would be no rain and no dew. It proved God's power later on in the, in the account. You need to go back and read it. It's important. There's a lot in there. And the book of Kings does not outright say this part, but it must have been true for life to have continued on the way that it did. In James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Elijah was a human, just as we are. And when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And then it carries on. And it says, but then when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. I want you to pay attention to that last part. 
He prayed that there would not be any rain and there was no rain for three and a half years. And he prayed again and suddenly there was rain and the crops grew. If the crops grew then, there must have been seeds in the ground. Not the seeds planted three years ago the last time it rained. They planted at least twice a year. So six times over, they didn't know when the end of the drought was coming. They didn't know that it would be three and a half years. They didn't know when to expect rain and yet they planted seeds in the dust. I don't know about you, but that challenges me. For a farmer in a drought to plant seeds when he expects no rain and no harvest is a sacrifice. That speaks of faith like I don't understand. Because that to me says, and to the world says, a waste of money, a waste of time, a waste of effort. Can I tell you, there is no waste of time, no waste of money, and no waste of effort when it comes to the kingdom of God. He just asks us to be faithful. It says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And Elijah was a human being just like us. And yet when he prayed, the earth responded. God responded. God moved. But those farmers kept planting seeds. They kept trusting that God would provide. And this is how we achieve right speech and right works. In that when we are depositing seeds of encouragement, when we're depositing the word of the Lord, sometimes it looks like it's useless. Sometimes we write people off and say, why would I bother reaching out to them? They don't want to hear it. You plant seeds in the drought too. You plant seeds when you can't see the harvest coming. We plant seeds when we don't know when the rain's coming back. Amen? There's two different themes kind of going on here between the widow and the oil and the flower and the drought and the rain and the crops growing. And I would like to connect them for you today in this. The widow surrendered to the word of the Lord and gave all that she had in faith that God would somehow provide. The farmers planted seeds in drought when they expected no harvest, but held on to the faith and trusted that God would provide for their need. And so today, I wanna challenge you that you would be obedient to the Lord and sacrifice whatever it is that he's asked for. That we would put him first in everything that we do. That we would keep the right mind and the right peace, the right praise and the right heart. That we might be able to use the right speech and the right works that would tell of his goodness to people who desperately need him. That we would use our purified mind and our purified heart. There's nothing good in me, y'all. Nothing good in me, only in Christ. Allow him to, to purify our hearts and our thoughts. And because of that, use the right speech and right works to faithfully plant seeds 
in our kids, in each other, in the people that we brush shoulders with in the grocery store, in the family member who is in the midst of addiction, and it's easier to say, I'm not going to bother. We continue to plant seeds in our missionaries, trusting that God will bring the harvest. We continue to pray over them, trusting that God will use those prayers when he needs them. And he will use our obedience to create testimonies and to change lives around the world. We plant seeds of obedience in our faith promises. That we say, God, everything you've given me belongs to you anyways. So I'll give it up to you. You can have what you ask for. So today as we close, we're going to pray and I'm going to give you a challenge. Action steps that you can take this week to begin using these five rights of encouragement. And you can pick which one you think you want to focus on. Or maybe you want to do all three. Or maybe you want to pick two. Option one is that you would boldly speak encouraging words to my family, not my family, your family. This is what you would say. I will boldly speak words of encouragement to my family. Option two is that you would prepare an intentional gift to someone you know is struggling. Not a Starbucks date for your best friend, okay? Let the Holy Spirit guide you. Who needs a word of encouragement? Who needs that tangible thing that they can come back to? It could be something you create. It could be a card. It could be a basket of soup if they're sick. Whatever it is, let the Lord lead you. And thirdly, the other option is to write a card to a missionary and actually send it. There are postcards already prepared for you. They're out in the lobby under the missions wall. And it has the card and the envelope because you can't always send postcards internationally. And some of them have, you know, addresses that get forwarded and whatnot. We can provide you with the address to mail it. We even have international stamps. We've taken away all the barriers except for you to take the card, fill it out, and send it to a missionary with your prayers. And so we're going to pray, and I I encourage you that if one stuck out to you, that you would ask, Holy Spirit, guide me. Tell me what you want me to do with this. Tell me who you want me to reach out to. Give me the words to say and the works to do. All across this room, would you pray with me? And as we come before the Lord and as we ask him, to guide our hearts. I first want to pause and make sure that I don't miss the opportunity to offer the gift of salvation. If you've been listening to this and you think, I need that kind of faith. 
And I need that kind of encouragement. I need that kind of peace, but I don't have it. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, if you've never surrendered fully to him, today would be a great day to make that right. And so if you know that you've never asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, or you have, but you know that you need to recommit your heart to him, you know that you need to crawl back up on the altar and say, I will be a living sacrifice. I will choose willingly to serve you, God. If that's you today, would you just slip up your hand so I know who I'm praying with? Anyone here who would say, I need to choose to surrender to Jesus. Holy Spirit, I ask right now that you would bring individuals to our minds. God, that you would bring certain relationships to the forefront of our thoughts. Jesus, we ask that you would point us to who you want us to encourage. God, we ask that you would guide our hearts and our minds. Jesus, that you would cleanse our hearts to be more like you. Holy Spirit, would you grant the peace that passes all human understanding? For every person in this room thinking, I don't have enough, or I don't have an adequate gift to give, or thinking all this talk about encouraging others is nice, but I wish somebody would encourage me. Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts today, Jesus. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. Don't forget to visit us at LifeChurchROA on Instagram and Facebook for updates, service times, and ways to get involved. If you made a decision to follow Jesus today, we would love to partner with you on your next steps. Visit LifeChurchROA.org slash Jesus to learn more. We love you and we can't wait to see you soon.